So hello everyone and welcome to this eSight online conversation. My name is Fredrik Eriksson and I'm very pleased to welcome today Mathilde Fasting, a colleague in the world of think tanks who has recently published a fascinating book on Francis Fukuyama and what comes after the end of history. This is also our subject for today's conversation. Matilda is an economist and economic historian, and she is a fellow at the Norwegian think tank Civita. She has a PhD in the economic history of ideas and has previously published several books in that field. And she joins me now from Oslo. Hello, Matilda. I'm very glad to have you with me today. Hello. Can you hear me? We can hear you fine. Absolutely. So first of all, congratulations to your new book. I find it fascinating because it's a deep dive into the thinking of what is a remarkable person who has managed to set the tone for so much of Western thinking about politics, ideas, and the world since the late 1980s. His first major tract was The End of History and The Last Man, and I think this is the book that he is also going to be most remembered for. At the same time, it's also a book that has prompted a pretty robust disagreement among scholars and readers about what he actually said in that book. For instance, did he really say that the struggle between ideas and societies would end? Even now, people debate this. After the West left Afghanistan a few weeks ago with a tail between its legs, I read comments suggesting that Fukuyama had got it all wrong and that his liberal triumphalism after the collapse of communism was extraordinarily naive. And then again, there were others suggesting that, no, Fukuyama actually got it right. This is the type of conflict and the type of problems that will arise in Fukuyama's sketchbook. So can we start here, Matilda? What was the core message from Fukuyama in the end of history? I think it is uh, what you said as a trend. There's scholars that said that this is things that's going to happen in real history, but the history of ideas, um, which is about ideologies and, and uh, how we can at the best, uh, our best capacity to create societies, political orders, as he called them, um, that will work. And um, his message was, and still is, that, uh, liberal democracy as is for the time being the best thing we have ever made up our humans for human societies which means that I think that he um, he actually wants to say that that the ideological struggle is uh, is complete as for the time being and I'm also adding for the time being because as he says we don't know what the future will bring but at as, as it is for now, as been for the last 30 years, liberal democracies are probably the best we're going to have. And then he adds, because he's a little pessimistic as well, you can look at it as, for instance, Winston Churchill did, in saying that it's the least bad one. Not the best, but the least bad one. Which means, and also contains these uh, real history things that's how, that are happening all the time, democracies declining, liberalism under threat, all those things that we see around us. So I think the short answer will be that he says, um, if we are going to design or going to think about a political system that we would like to, to live under, liberal democracies are still, still the ones that will be, be the best we can manage. So, 
I mean, there's been a few interpretations, or at least a few commentaries uh, about people, uh, scholars that have been reading the end of history in the last man, suggesting that sort of what you take it from there is basically that there is no other challenger to liberal democracy as an idea. Um, so we had in the past different type of ideas, which of course came with um, a different ideological package, to put it mildly, uh, and different ideas for how do you organize society? What's the role of the state in a society? And many of these ideas, if they hadn't collapsed before, they collapsed in 1989. Um, but what would you say about sort of those who makes the case, for instance, people like Samuel Huntington, that, well, if you look around the world, you can see many different ideas for how to organize society, but they may not be dressed up in the typical ideological fashion that comes from sort of an ideological book, um, that may be sort of more religious type of, of ideas of society. It may be sort of historical, cultural, uh, you have sort of a, a broad discussion in some quarters right now about the emergence of civilizational states. Um, and and uh, there are some claiming that China is at least aspiring to become a civilizational state, meaning that there is at least some fundaments in that thinking about sort of the core principles that should guide society. And you can, at least to some extent, um, compare them to uh, an ideological concept of how how society should work. Yes, uh, I think that um, when it comes to China and when it, when it comes to 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 other um, countries with strong beliefs in their own political system, and he's not saying, and I'm not saying that that you won't have contenders to liberal democracies. You always have. And right now, it seems that China and also for Fukuyama is is the most, um, in in lack of other words, the most popular one or the most in in the in coming in for being being something that other countries would look at and say, look at what they're doing in China. That looks like a very good political system that we might might want to take a closer look at. But uh, for Fukuyama, I think that. Um, Liberal democracies are actually uh, like two things, two main things. The um, the one thing that he says, uh, and this is just on principle as an idea of a liberal democracy, he says that, uh, first of all, uh, it gives us, um, and that's probably the least read part of his book, The End of History. It is about how we treat each other as human beings. He says that... Um, it's it's uh, the reciprocity that we have, the respect that we have for others, the the freedom that each one of us can can um, can live under when we're living in a liberal democracy that we are uh, free to to choose. This is uh, and, and respected for that. Uh, that is, I think, probably the, the the forgotten thing about a very important message that he had in the end of history because the last part of that title of that book was. And the last man, and that goes back to Nietzsche. And the end of history is, of course, Hegel thinking. So he is deeply influenced by um, by philosophers uh, before him. But he says that uh, that uh, uh, all around the world you will have uh, liberal democracies coming in all kinds of different shades. And also in his discussions with uh, Samuel Huntington, who I wrote a book 
as an answer to the end of history from Fukuyama that first came as, as an article. And that article came actually uh, a couple of months before the Berlin Wall, which was, I think, uh, some of the reason why gained so much attention after a while, because he, he wrote it and published it in the summer of 1989. 18, 18, no, 1989. And he, uh, he then claimed this the main idea that we have been talking about. And that was before the Berlin Wall. And nobody at that point really thought it was possible for that wall to just crumble like it did only a couple of months later. Not even Fukuyama, I think, really believed it was going to happen. He said probably it's going to happen, but that fast was really hard to, to, to see at that point. But then he wrote this book in 1992 and Samuel Huntington came back with his answer clash of civilizations and um, I think that the uh, disagreements between uh, Fukuyama and uh, Huntington and we have to add I have to add that Huntington was actually uh, Fukuyama's teacher when he was doing his PhD so they knew each other very well and uh, he, uh, I think they disagree about the core of culture because Fukuyama has a much much more dynamic view of that he says that uh, people are influencing each other histories are made up they come in contact with other people they are always like changeable not fixed and in the core I think the disagreements between those two were that Samuel Huntington probably had a more set up uh, idea of of civilizations grouping them in about I think seven different civilizations and quite often linking that to to religion as well. So it means that while Fukuyama says that these things can change over time, uh, Huntington wouldn't say they won't change, but he would be more fixed into those ideas. And then probably also saying that an idea within one religion about a human society and political systems might be better suited for that religion or that civilization and another one like the Western civilization would be suited for liberal democracies, whereas Fukuyama, he doesn't think it is like that. I'm not sure if that answering your question. No, it it, 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 um... it it does, and it prompts me to think about a few follow-up questions. I mean, what, one which immediately follows from it, I mean, to what extent is Fukuyama a universalist who basically believes that the institutions of democracy and liberalism can be emerged sort of in any type of culture, in any type of society? And to what extent is he sort of, on the contrary, sort of very attentive to the finer points of culture and that they may promote different societies that, at least in, in some people's thoughts, require different political systems? Uh, this is actually, I think, uh, one of the most difficult and probably one of the best questions uh, I've had in a long time, because it's really hard. This is, this is the core of what, what and how you could say that liberal democracies, that they have one, is it for everyone? Is it for universal? Is it for all societies at all times? Even though societies have different developments, they are in different phases of their development. They are modern, they're not so modern, they're doing this and that, and they have this and that kind of history. But is there at least an idea that can be universal? And at some point, I think that Fukuyama thinks so. So I think he is in his core believing that um, with globalization, with modernization, with all the things that are coming with, with our way of communicating, just think about he wrote this before social media, he wrote this before we had this enormous contact that we have, but we were in the beginning of it. And um, 
I think that he still believes that because if he doesn't, then it would be hard to 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 still believe that liberal democracies are the one I or have won won as he kind of claims ideologically. So that's the answer uh, to to the, uh, to that first question. And the second question is um, also tougher, but it's it's I think in his view and also what I mentioned about Huntington, he is very attentive to to differences in culture, history, religion. But even though he wants to see all those small differences and big differences as well in some countries, between some countries, he still believes that the, the wheel will kind of go in the direction of liberal democracies anyhow, because of the contact we all have with each other around the globe. All right. Let us just dig so, a little so bit. The, well, the, 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 the thing is that he thinks it's, it's, it's harder for a culture to stay without uh, development in a world like we have today because people are traveling, well, not under COVID, but people are traveling, people are talking to each other in a much, to a much larger extent than they were before. And that's why it's, it's harder to keep, unless you do like North Korea, try to keep people inside the border and not not uh, letting them have contact with other people. Yep. Uh, we're going to come back to this issue because I think this also bears on some of um, uh, some of the core thinking that comes from the books by Fukuyama on political order that came later. So let's come back to that. But I, I want us to dig a little bit deeper into sort of the end of history thesis because it was so provocative and it has been so differently interpreted by so many people. So you mentioned previously sort of the the thought figure here, the end of history, which is a product, of course, of Hegel. And what can we say about sort of the intellectual uh, genealogy of Fukuyama himself? I mean, I find it pretty striking that he sort of he came as a scholar. I, I got the feeling sort of that he was much more uh, sort of anchored in the humanities. He, uh, I think he spent quite some time with Alan Bloom um, at that time at Cornell. Um, he went to France in order to understand sort of postmodernism a bit better, uh, partly as, a, as an exercise to understand literature, but of course also related to philosophy. And, and the book itself, The End of History, what would it say? I mean, to what extent is it a product of philosophy rather than a product of sort of an sort of astute observation of, um, of major trends in the world at the time when he started to write that article in, which I think was in 1989 when, when the first article came out? Uh, because even if you, you can go in and discuss sort of his analysis of of um, the West or of different other societies that ran on different ideological principles, but there is also a pretty substantial degree of philosophical thought in the book, which seems more anchored in more um, sort of perennial discussions about man, um, which draws a lot from, you know, Friedrich Nietzsche and many other uh, thinkers from, well, sort of 19th century and uh, perhaps going a little bit beyond that. But of course, then again, from, from early 20th century as well. So to what extent is it a product of philosophy rather than observations about major world trends? I think uh, you, you're into an important point about Fukuyama himself there, because I think that it's actually... Um, I don't think he could have written or even conceived the idea if he hadn't he didn't have that background of his, which I'd briefly mention is 
like you've read in the book, and I asked him about that. There are many things there, but first of all, he um, he started out studying literature, as you said, humanities, absolutely, and also Greek thought. Uh, he learned Greek in order to read Greek in the original language, in order to read Plato, for instance. He um, he spent a lot of time. Uh, doing that his, in his first first years of study. And then he went, as you said, to France in order to understand um, Derrida, which he says <laughs> quite frankly that he didn't understand much. And he, uh, by that time, he decided to change. So he changed his, uh, his uh, studies from humanities, from classics, and over to political science, uh, which was... I think to him when he first discovered that he was very happy. So he finished his um, classics and then he went over to, to Harvard and he met finally Huntington and he came immersed into political science and, and, and all those things. But he had with him this classical heritage in a way. And also another thing that is important is his family background. He's um, originally Japanese. He's born and raised in, in the US and also his father, but his mother's coming from, from Japan and his grandparents on that side, they were, uh, were, or at least his grandfather on that side, he was a professor at the University of Kyoto. And um, he brought with him uh, an, a European heritage of uh, 20th century uh, scholars like Max Weber, like uh, other thinkers, probably also Nietzsche, Hegel, I don't know, but, but many books. And uh, he got, got hold of them uh, at an early age. And um, he, I think he, he has always been interested in, in, in European thought as such. So what I said to him when I met him is, are you actually European in heart? Are you actually coming from here, living in the US, but your thinking is that much more like you would find in a European university or in some, some place like where you are in Brussels or wherever. But um, And then he kind of nods and he smiles. He's a quite timid person. He's very uh, humble in a way. He's. Uh, I also think he is uh, a person that, that can um, admit to mistakes. He can um, uh, think think about and reflect about his earlier thoughts and, and revising them and, and, and coming to new conclusions. So even though he's still, as I started with saying that he is still keeps on to this liberal uh, democracy ideas and many other things have changed so that is a little bit about his background and um, and uh, I think that um, for him um, drawing on these things he ended up by seeing the world through uh, many lenses and made him write this book end of history and also you could see that in other books that he's continuously been writing at least for instance in his last book about identity that came uh right before covid but after donald trump won uh, the presidential elections in in the u.s so it came in 2017 i think but then again the last thing i would mention is as his father he was studying sociology and um fukuyama said to me that he as a young man said that i don't want to be like my father, so I don't want to have anything to do with 
with that, that area of study. So he didn't want to go into sociology. And finally, he says, now, where am I? I'm actually probably much more into it than my father ever was. So uh, uh, he's been reading a lot of that after his formal studies. So um, I would say that his background is really broad. And uh, that, 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 that is, I guess, what makes him so interesting when it comes to, to, to participating in the public debates. One final question on on the end of history, which is about technology and the progress of technology. I mean, that was one part uh, of the end of history in The Last Man, where he, he basically made the claim that sort of the technological progress that was achieved in the liberal West, the liberal capitalist West, uh, that was all in awe of people living in other other societies and that they would sort of gradually conform to a liberal market economy because they also wanted to enjoy the fruits of modern consumption culture. I think he at one point basically says that um, the world is sort of the, the, the VCR, which was back then um, sort of a major technology, was going to homogenize uh, the world upon liberal economic principles. And that would sort of a very tech deterministic way of of of, of looking at it. Is that something that he has maintained uh, afterwards, or has he um, taken a different view on the role of technology for societal developments? Uh, when he wrote a book about uh, uh, the development in uh, biotechnology, not technology as such as you're talking about, uh, internet and things, but he, he, uh, he was kind of optimistic. He said that, that just as you were saying now, he said that, that uh, internet, the, uh, the technology that brings us iPhones and modes of communicating and all those things, he had a positive view on that from the beginning i guess when it started in the 1990s and at least this book that i'm referring to is from from just around 2000 2001 and i confronted him with that and said you still have this views now and he said no i'm i'm kind of disappointed it's not the way that i thought it was going to develop still is a good thing for liberal democracies for people to participate which they do by using social medias and things but he has really big concerns about all the downsides so um and then again if we are taking that over to china about surveillance about all those things he could do with technology it's really it's really hard for him to to say today that this is just a positive development on the contrary he's been trying to to do many different things among them is an initiative of trying to to develop an idea about something called middleware, which is, uh, I guess, easily explained something in between the user and the the, uh, the uh, like Facebook or any of those providers, and saying that 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 you should kind of um, have the possibility to influence a little what you are seeing, where you are, are where you are participating, and not just being, uh, uh, I guess, uh, a victim of algorithms and, and the big tech companies so i'm not sure if he will succeed in that because it's really it's really hard to see how you could break that up but he's concerned and not as positive as you as you said he was in the beginning of the 1990s all right so let us leave the end of history and the last man Fukuyama has been very 
productive writing many other books. And we are in a while going to come to uh, your own analysis and his analysis about where we are today, about liberal democracy today. Um, but uh, before we do that, I, thought, I think it can be useful just to go through some of the other books as well and, and, and talk about them, partly because I think it's possible to see uh, in some of his other books, um, uh, I, I, sort of an intellectual journey for him of leaving what could perhaps be described as uh, Fukuyama being a typical neoconservative, or at least having a typical neoconservative view of the world. And then in the 1990s, he came out with a book on trust, then came a book on state building, and then came two major books on political order. There were other books as well, of course, but I think these books gets to the heart of what Fukuyama wants to say about stable and peaceful societies and how they arise, and potentially also what makes them to fall uh, after a while. So if we come here then to Fukuyama's sort of grand idea about the state and society, um, he has once said, perhaps jokingly, that Denmark was his ideal country. And that, of course, infuriates uh, someone from Sweden and someone from Norway. But, uh, but granted, uh, Denmark is a fantastic society. So if we take that model of thinking, so what lessons are there for other countries from Denmark? Are there universal aspects in a Danish history of creating a stable and modern societies that other societies could import, where we could plant them into other countries? Or are these developments very unique to, in this case, Denmark itself? I don't want to go into Danish history, but sort of using that as a model for, for how to think about these issues. Well, uh, first of all, the getting to Denmark phrase was a phrase that they had in, in, in the World Bank, and it was just like a metaphor of saying that Denmark was the kind of ideal society, Scandinavia as well, of course, Norway, Sweden, but again, Denmark. And I think also to, to Fukuyama, because he, he went there on, on to be a guest lecturer at the Aarhus University for some time, I guess that he knew, he knows Denmark. Quite, quite well so it was natural for him to to pick up that phrase and using it when describing this ideal model of a liberal democracy which builds on three different things it's the rule of law it is uh, the um, state capacity the bureaucracy and it is the uh, the the participation democratic participation accountability so um he says that actually getting to Denmark had to do with the absence of corruption and having a modern state, a state which he also says here, I think is much harder to get than just having a state, a big state that provides welfare benefits to people. That was really the reason for my interest. So he was, I think, starting with, um, not maybe starting with the book Trust, because that's a little, little on the side on, on this theme here, but he says this in the state building book. He says it because he actually turned in the beginning of uh, this century, he turned to to work with uh, developing countries like in Latin America. Lately, he has been working a lot in, in um, Eastern Europe and also former Soviet Union states. And he's been really thinking a lot about what makes a state work. 
and also, of course, the experiences that that uh, the U.S. had in Iraq and Afghanistan, of course, and those things really inflicted his thoughts a lot. And the most important idea was that he says, I have been neglecting the role of the state. I thought when I wrote The End of History that that wasn't as important as I've come to understand now. And if you're looking at things that he is writing now and has been written for ever since the political order books came in 2011 and 2014, the state has really been his main issue. And by that, I mean all things around the state. State, which uh, as uh, with its bureaucracy, with its mode of working, with all the things that can go wrong and so forth, all those things he treats, first of all, in the origins of political order, telling the story of many different societies in the world. And then maybe this even more important book about political order and political decay. And in the decay word, you find a lot of things that can go go wrong that he describes and which you can find all over the place in all societies. And um, I think that's probably the most important change in his thought all over, if you look from from the 18, uh, 1989 until today. It is the importance of the state and the capability, not the size, but the mode and the the um, the mode of working, the how a state can ensure the things that the inhabitants wants or the citizens in this that society, what what they need and what they want and how the state can provide that. So he's not into a big state. He's not into, and he's, but he's not afraid of the state. And I think that for us living in, or at least for me living in Norway, um, I've never been very afraid of the state because, but as a, as a US citizen, you might just think about it completely differently. So it's, it depends on where you live. And I think that his, um, occupation or preoccupation with the state has a lot to do uh, about his he being his being a, a, an American and living in the U.S. where he sees that that is really something that they should have paid much more attention to. At least also in all the the um, the operations that they have had in, in in different countries, like in Iraq, for instance, he says quite bluntly that they thought that the state was there, but it wasn't. So it was a misconception, a misunderstanding, completely failure to, to, to think that, that it was just to come and make democracy, making participation. That's the easiest thing you do, giving people a vote. But what are they voting for? And if you don't have a state or any capacity at all to, 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 to do all those things that the citizens want, what, what do you do then? So, um, I'm not sure if that's, um, but I think the picture about the state and, and the idea about the getting to Denmark, the state is absolutely the most, most important part, the most difficult one and the most important one. Indeed, we should also say that, of course, Fukuyama had this famous break with uh, many of his absolutely. older friends uh, from sort of neoconservative circles in the sense that he didn't believe in um, sort of the proposition that you could... Uh, build up stable liberal democracies, um, uh, in this case, at the point of a gun in Iraq or in Afghanistan. He he wrote a book where it took sort of a very strong stance against this particular idea. Um, and he also says, of course, that that was difficult for him personally because they were good friends and he had been working with a lot of them and, uh, and he still has issues with that. So, uh, so, of course, when Donald Trump was 
elected president in the United States, he still had or still has a Republican friends. He's not voting Republican anymore. He did uh, in his youth, but he's uh, he's not there there anymore. But he says it's really difficult, and uh, the polarization that you could see overall in the United United States it also comes down to to friendship and comes down to his personal life as well. But he, in his books on political order, he's also he's talking sort of about the historical background to why we have the emergence of successful successful states in some countries, including Denmark. Um, um, no, but he has this um, uh, analysis of what constitutes uh, the successful states and how it emerges. And rather than talking about sort of the parts of the world where it didn't work. Um, if we talk about the parts of the world world where it worked, I mean, Denmark, for instance, or Europe more broadly. So what was the sort of historical ingredients that helped to create these fundaments for a, a successful state? Well, he says uh, that, uh, in a way, uh, we didn't have, or at least the Danes didn't have, any kind of plan for of creating a state or creating a viable liberal democracy it's actually uh it's actually something that just came about when you analyze it and looking looking back you could see that uh, those countries that today are strong liberal democracies uh they have had uh, or followed a certain path if you wish you want to say use that word started out by, by having um rule of law in some sense it's very important, and then um, a phase where where state building, as he calls it, uh, was the main thing: building up bureaucracy, building up capacity in different areas. And I remember that from from Norway, and it's probably why I chose to to read his books on political order first, because I actually did. I didn't read the end of history first. I read those two books first. And I recognized the pattern that had happened in Norway. We had a long period in the 19th century where state building was actually what we were doing. And then finally, we ended up by political participation and democracy, but that came last. That was the last step in this modernization uh, progress of things going that way. But, but you know, um, countries can't choose that. And historically, they didn't either so you have different developments in different countries although northern europe might resemble uh, each other a lot but then going to other parts of the world you don't have that and then comes that comes back to your question about what you can learn from denmark or what you can learn in in countries that haven't modernized in this way or that wants to become more liberal or more democratic in a, in a sense and um I think end of story for Fukuyama is uh, uh, that um, it must come from the people in the country themselves. They must uh, be willing and uh, wanting to to create modern states. And um, the worst thing for them is probably that they have to do many things at the same time. I mean, they cannot use like we did in Norway many hundred years establishing a liberal democracy they don't have that time they have to do it much quicker uh they can get help they can seek help but it's up to them to decide and i think that's his idea when he's talking about i think 
a place in Southeast Asia where he's, he was and he talks about education. He talks about people uh, getting a sense of, uh, of, of their projects in a way. So in a way, he's saying that a word that might be dangerous for some, but that might be important in this story here is na nation building, state building. So he says, you have to have an idea and you have to, to, pro, to, to go on with that. But the positive thing is that you have a lot of countries where you could pick and choose. You could look at, at different countries, Denmark, Germany, wherever you want to look and see this is working, this is working. Maybe this is working with us as well because this resembles, we might find good ideas. We don't have to develop them ourselves. So that is the little hope. But he says it's difficult. So he won't try to put the model of Denmark onto different other countries by saying this is the recipe, this is how you're doing it. It's up to the countries themselves. All right. Very good. So let's move on to contemporary times, our current times, and hear your views and the views that you and Fukuyama have in the book on where we are right now. So when I'm reading the book, I, I'm, I'm getting the feeling that both of you are pretty pessimistic um, about um, not just the world, but in this case, perhaps more, more so about America. And that there is something in Western societies and perhaps the world that has ended, even if what has ended is not history, um, sometimes I follow, I find it a bit difficult to follow his line of argument. And I think sometimes he can be even frustratingly simplistic in his views, especially when it comes to economics. But I think one thing that came out in, in your book um, is that he is deeply worried about liberal democracy and its future. And, and, and its future. So why don't we start there? So what, what is the thesis here? Uh, are liberal democracies doomed? No, I don't think so, and I don't think Fukuyama thinks so either. He has, uh, as I mentioned to you before we we started this conversation today, he has a book coming uh, next year, and uh, that's called the book, at least the working title of that is Liberalism and Its Discontents. And there he uh, he uh, he come goes into too many of those things he sees around around us now and uh, why he's so why he's pessimistic is of course because the u.s is even though it's um well it's a big country and it's uh it's very important to other liberal democracies that the u.s or the united states that it functions in a way so that's why he's so preoccupied with 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 the u.s because if uh, the united states if they fail um then what what would be the uh what would be the uh, the leader the star the things the the country that people are following like western european countries you need a strong and a big country that succeeds so that's why when there are troubles in the united states that will kind of kind of uh, move over to other countries as well because they will start doubting what they are doing and that's why also he sees the competition from china because if china does well then other countries might want to look at china even though i asked him directly do you ever do you really think that that people will or countries will use China as a model. And he says, still says no, so he doesn't think so, but he's worried about that. And he also added that in 50 years, 
time will show. Um, I might be wrong then, but well, in 50 years, he's probably dead because he's uh, 68 years old now. So <laughs> unless he becomes really old, um, well, anyway, um, he's pessimistic because the, the developments in the US, and he also says that that started long before Donald Trump was, uh, was elected president. So um, he said, as I also quote in the book, that he was horrified when when Donald Trump won in 2016. But he says, as a political scientist, I was curious because are the uh, American institutions, are they strong enough to tackle, to handle a person like Donald Trump on the top? And uh, I think now, um, because we actually had a lost interview in the last talks uh, when this book was finished, uh, I tried to postpone and postpone because it was, we were coming into autumn last year and I said we have to wait until we know the results of the presidential elections in November and we did. So then he was of course happy that Trump didn't win, win twice, but we didn't know about the attacks on Capitol, we didn't know about those things, we didn't know what we now know, maybe Trump is going to go for another presidency in three years time. But anyway. Um, I think that to some extent he's happy with what that America coped with a president like Donald Trump. On the other hand, he says that all those softer sides that leads to polarization, to, to differences between people, to, to really uh, a political debate that's not a debate, you're only shouting from each side of, of the corner and you're not meeting in any... Uh, any uh, sensible sense at all you're just you're just not listening to the others uh, and all those things that that goes on they are really hurting the political system and those things are really difficult to to recreate and that's why he's mostly worried about the u.s but then again norway is not the same as u.s either neither is belgium germany or any other country in in, in western europe so you can't really compare but you have things in common with liberal democracies, because there are problems also in, in Western Europe, but not maybe uh, to the same extent as you have in the US. But you have neighbors like Hungary, Poland, with the presidents and political parties uh, going into something that uh, Fukuyama and others call illiberal democracies, and maybe just democracy in the name, but not liberal to any any practical sense and when when liberal democracies are attacked it's usually not the democratic part that's attacked it's the liberal part and that's also important and he makes a point of that in, in his new book yeah no indeed so what's the root cause then of this particular development that you have a challenge against liberal democracy at home in america or indeed in some other countries even if there are differences between uh, Western countries, it seems to me that many of the countries are facing similar type of problems, even if the scale of the problems, or is at least the scale of the revolt against liberal democracy, uh, isn't the same. It's, I think, uh, he, he mentions, and also we have in the political debates in Norway, it's social inequality, uh, because social inequality uh, means that... Um, People are losing status. They don't have the same expectations to the future as they had before. And, and all those kind of things that will follow, it's, uh, it's difficult. But at the same time, if you look at social inequality all over the globe, 
it's actually diminishing, but that doesn't mean anything to to countries where, like Norway, if social inequality rises in Norway, we will think about Norway, not that any anyone in India or China has uh, has had a better life or will have a better life. So so you have to look at it. It's always in the in the local context. And liberal democracies they have probably been thinking more about how globalization would be good for everyone, but it's it has been uh, maybe um, not taking as seriously as they should have the things that will happen in a country when Chinese cars are coming, when people are answering on learning, doing their jobs from India, from, uh, from other places, and then replacing Norwegians, Swedes, or Americans, or whatever. So it's it's a big picture that probably on the economic side, liberal democracies haven't been been foreseeing to the extent that they should. And then it's the discontent that follows. So, and that is of course not only um, for the U.S. That's also of course for 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 Europe and for for countries like uh, like uh, the ones that we are living in here. So. Um, so social inequality is one thing. Um, the other thing is that that uh, social media in itself, and also as he says, um, when it comes to to right wing and left wing um, populism that he's talking a lot about, you would see that uh, he's most afraid of of the the, the right wing populism, like you will have, um, like going into to very um, to uh, to um, a populism that will treat people not as people living in a country, but different groups. You're saying this is, I'm talking to you, and you might not be the whole part of the population in a country. It might be just a group. And that group thinking is also something that, that he's really afraid of. And he's saying that as long as you will permit different groups to have um they can be legitimate. They can have claims that that absolutely is important to listen to. And uh, when it comes to the U.S. with racism, Black Lives Matters, and all those things, it is not to say that that they are not uh, in their absolute right and and should claim the things that they do. But when that becomes the most important thing, and you forget that you are also an American, to put it just bluntly, then it is going to do something to the society and to liberal societies because liberal societies are based on universalism. It's based on rights for everyone and equal treatment of everyone. And I think that's in the core what he's afraid of. And personally that I am afraid of as well. So so if we flip this around then and, and um, we talk about, so how how can we sort of bend the curve for liberal democracy so that it goes in the right direction? What, what, what's necessary to do? Uh, first of all, um, the reason for, for me writing this book and finally talking to Francis Fukuyama was that um, we need to, if you want to defend liberal democracies, you actually have to know what it is. And you have to know uh, um, how uh, the different parts, what is important, and how you could move on. So first part is just to understand society. And as I also said in the introduction, I uh, I was born and raised in Norway and taking Norwegian society for granted. I mean, you do when you live, if you are young and you think it's... And I was young also in, in uh, 18, 1989. And things looked good. So you didn't really have to think so much about 
politics about social inequality, about liberal democracies as such, because you took it for granted. You could go and vote. Everything was kind of working. You could disagree with things, but anyway, by the end of the day, it was okay. But then um, I finally saw that uh, you actually have to stand up. You have to to use your voice. You have to be uh, be willing to to get into arguments. You have to to work for it. It's not something that's uh, that's just there and it's never going to change. The Political Decay book, for instance, is a book about all those different things, small things and big things that can go wrong. And uh, like the developments in Hungary and Poland, you see that it starts out and then step by step, smaller steps, but it goes in one direction and they have to stop that. So I'm not saying that we can't do that in, in countries like, well, uh, Western European countries or other countries where people live and are listening to this. But you just have to, to, to find out what is the problem. And then when you try to, when you find that, what is the actual problem here in our society? Is it the media? Is it the uh, the politicians? Is it uh, the economic system? What is it? And then you can start working on that. So uh, it's not just we're not doomed at any any anyhow. And going back to the first phrase that Fukuyama said, liberal democracies are still the uh, the, uh, the the well the best best of the worst things that we have. And by that he means it's a lot of job all the time. And that's what he's also also doing by writing books and articles and participating. I suppose one one element of it is to provide people with more opportunity, right? Um, I mean, coming back to the issue about uh, social inequality that you talked about, uh, you have a section in your book when where you talk about uh, recognition, um, themos. Um, uh, and having societies that are um, observant of different people and make sure that there are sort of there is a future which includes respect and recognition for every individual if they choose to go uh, to go in that particular direction, then it may be that everyone is not going to choose that that path for themselves. Mm, yeah, so what, what, what would that really include? I mean, I, I've been thinking, I've been following sort of the discussion around sort of identity politics and, and the crises. And sometimes I'm, I'm getting a bit pessimistic thinking that, well, this sounds like almost, you know, a religious war between different fractions, uh, um, sort of Catholics and Protestants are banging uh, uh, their heads against each other. Uh, on the other hand, it may be issues that you can resolve by by policies as well, and if so, what 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 type of policies would that be? Well, first of all, liberal democracies is also the the uh, well, at least the the only system that we have, political system that we have that um, that um, where pluralism is possible, pluralism in every in every sense, the people living their own lives uh, according to their wishes and wants and also religions and everything that that's and that is also the the the, uh, the most difficult thing because if you're living with people that are wanting completely different things from yourself you have to tolerate that and you have to be able at least to 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 say that we are still living in one society even though we have very different views on lots of things so it comes down to to finding a small core it's a strong not strong enough core to say that well uh, you want that, I want this, 
uh, we are in the same society, so we have to agree on just a minimum. And uh, Fukuyama is not afraid of saying that that might be some kind of uh, of of history. It might be some kind of common uh, common ground that could be. Uh, he's actually talking about um, about. Uh, uh, national identity stories it might be a little difficult for many countries to 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 think about that but he says there must be something more than just the basic fact that you can vote and, and that you have you are a citizen you have to to have something around the idea of being a norwegian of being an american of being uh a french um or, well anything it has to be something else something more but not excluding people and you could just, by listening to me now, understand how difficult this is. Because what can it be? He's jokingly saying that Italy is not its not a country. They are only a country when they play football. Winning or, you know, and maybe maybe football is it. Maybe that's that's what they should all agree on. And that when they're really feeling that they are Italian, it's when they play football. And he also says that if you search in your heart and say if your country uh, should come into a situation where you go to war which side will you be on who will you defend so you have to be willing to go into those deep maybe cultural social historical things as well even though everyone is not a part of that from the beginning because as i said this will happen in plural societies and not in like norway for 100 years ago or Sweden also 100 years ago mostly with Swedes ethnical Swedes living in Sweden and same with Norway you don't have that anymore and you can't go back there but it's hard right it is hard indeed it is hard indeed um all right um thank you uh, very much Matilde this has been uh very very uh uh interesting and stimulating to talk I'm going to Towards the end now, put a couple of questions to you that we have received from people uh, that have listened. Um, I won't be uh, able to even remotely get close to uh, taking all of these questions up, but 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 at least a few of them. So, um, if we start with thinking about challenges to liberal democracy today, is there sort of a constitutional fix to it, and perhaps not constitutional just by thinking? in a pure fashion about constitutions, but more thinking about sort of the broader institutional framework um, we have in the West and whether that needs to be adapted to better reflect uh, societies uh, as they have evolved, if we need to have stronger protection uh, uh, in some areas. Uh, there is one question, for instance, referring to the fact that freedom of speech is challenged in some countries. Um, and um, that this, of course, also connects to sort of the broader recognition issues, whether sort of are you, if you have sort of personal views that are deemed to be beyond the pale in societies, can you express them? If, and if you can't, what, what, what happens then if you, if you don't find um, sort of platforms or environments where you can exchange in ideas and discussions, which, uh, which allows you to be part of, of the conversation? So in, in that broad constitutional type of thinking about societies, are there something that we need to do in, in Western societies to become better? Well, freedom of speech is, I guess, the most important thing 
at least, uh, well, if you're saying the most important thing for, for even thinking about liberal society or uh, liberal democracy, I think uh, it's the most important value of them all. Because if you can't talk then and communicate, that is what it is to be human. That is how we how we relate to each other. It's by 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 talking and expressing ourselves in in any in all kind of senses. So I think that um, that's that's really uh, the first concern. And if you look at at states that are going in illiberal uh, directions, the first thing that they will do is start tampering with liberal um, with the freedom of speech so that is at least constitutional wise it's important that that societies protect them as best as they can and that will be be done by by rules but then you have all those soft things about that which is of course the most the the, the very difficult thing again because if you start uh, internalizing this and saying that I can't say this because I'm afraid or I can't say this because then something will happen and all those things and maybe I will be get kicked out of my university of my job of, of anything uh, it's a scandal you know you can you can just click wrongly on a button on social media and your tweet will go all the way over the globe in an instant and suddenly you will you won't have a chance to regret that. So, um, and that is again when when those things are are challenged from inside, either inside yourself or inside the country. That is that is uh, the real challenge, I think, because uh, if you uh, censor yourself and not use the freedom of speech, uh, you will. Maybe not willingly, because probably you will be thinking a lot about the value of, of freedom of speech. But by doing or by not saying and by not doing, you are actually um, undermining the, the fundament for, for liberal or for liberal democracies and also for freedom of speech. So again, I think that uh, uh, societies on, on the whole, if they do not pay attention to all the the soft side, the norms, the way people are acting, the way they are talking, the way all those unsaid rules are working. That is probably uh, more important in the future than thinking about the rules themselves that are written on paper. Because rules on paper, if it comes to an institution or if it comes to a system, it only works if people are believing in them and if they are acting accordingly. So... Um, and then, but you can, cannot make rules for people's thoughts and for people's for the communication between people and for what they choose not to do or to do because that is part of the other set of rules that are unwritten. And Fukuyama has always been very attentive to those parts of the society, and they can change. And if they change substantially, um, we might uh, go in the wrong direction, all of us, without uh, even knowing it before it's too late. So being aware of those things is, is important. All right. Thank you very much, Matilda. Um, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to, uh, to do this event. Thank you so much for writing the book in the first place. It's been a fascinating read, and I strongly recommend everyone uh, to uh, pick up the book from a bookstore or to order it. Um, there is a lot more in it which we haven't been able to uh, touch upon in in our conversation today that i think 
are thoughtful and very enriching perspectives when it comes to understanding uh, contemporary societies and the challenges that we are facing. Um, um, so thank you very much. You're welcome. And can I just add one more small thing by the yes. end? I've also written another book about Norway. So if you're interested in, in seeing how uh, liberal democracy came to came to being or was born and how it's uh, struggling now in the future, the book is called The Norwegian Exception and then with a question mark behind it. So it's available from Hearst Publishers in the UK and probably at the same places where you can order the other book. So um so that's uh, telling the story about Norway, not Denmark this time, but Norway. Very good. So the, the Norwegian exception, that was the, na- the title of the book, right? The Norwegian exception, and then with a question mark behind it, that's important. All right. Very good. Um, we should all go and order it directly. Thank you very much. And also thank you to all of those who have listened. <laughs>